Hello, and welcome to Ramblings with a Medical Historian. I'm your host, Nicole Curry, and this is a podcast where I ramble on about medical history. I look at strange practices, common misconceptions, and medicine throughout history. I also talk about some interesting Canadian and local history. This is Season 2, Episode 2. I know I just said in the last episode that I would have one episode per month, but I missed October and now November. Oops, sorry. Well, that's life with a chronic illness for you. Things never go according to plan. So let's continue to talk about residential schools. To start, I would like to warn you once again, the topic we are going to be discussing contains things that may be triggering to some individuals. We will be discussing the kidnapping and abuse of children and genocide that was the residential school system. This will be a very heavy topic. There is a 24-hour crisis hotline. Former residential school students can call 1-866-925-4419 for emotional crisis referral services and information on other health supports from the Government of Canada. Indigenous peoples across Canada can also go to the Hope for Wellness helpline 24 hours a day, 7 days a week for counselling and crisis intervention. Call the toll-free helpline at 1-855-242-3310 or connect to the online chat. I have put a link to these helplines in the show notes as well as a link to more information to begin your learning journey and to learn about the Indigenous peoples of Canada. And lastly, I would like to acknowledge that I am a settler. I live between the Batchewana First Nations and Garden River First Nation reserves on Robertson-Huron Treaty Territory. The Indigenous peoples of North America have been here for over 30,000 years. It behooves us to acknowledge and study Indigenous history. Today, I will be discussing the Canadian Indian residential school system that has had great intergenerational impacts. Okay, so in the last episode, we talked about events that led up to the formation of residential schools. I don't know if I said in the last episode, but all the knowledge that I am sharing is my opinion and theory based on information that I have gathered during my research, but it is always good to do your own research. This In this episode, I will be focusing on the Indian Act and how it impacted the creation and running of residential schools. In 1867, Canada became a country, and in 1876, they created the Indian Act, also called an Act to Amend and Consolidate the Laws Respecting Indians. The Indian Act is the primary law the federal government uses to administer Indian status, local Indigenous governments, and the management of reserve land. It also outlines governmental obligations to Indigenous peoples. The Indian Act pertains to people with Indian status. It does not directly reference non-status Indigenous peoples such as the Métis or Inuit. Now let's look at a quick timeline before we delve deeper. 
1867, the Indian Act is created, and the existing Indigenous self-government structures at this time are extinguished. An Indian is defined as any male person of Indian blood and their children. Provisions include status women who marry non-status men lose status, non-status women who marry status men gain status, and anyone with status who earns a degree or becomes a doctor, lawyer, or clergyman is also enfranchised, i.e. given rights, such as things like the right to vote. 1880 Though not a law, but a policy. Indigenous farmers are expected to have a permit to sell cattle, grain, hay, or produce. They must also have a permit to buy groceries and clothes. 1884. Attendance in residential schools becomes mandatory for status Indians until they turn 16. Children are forcibly removed and separated from their families and are not allowed to speak their own language or practice their own religious rituals. The sale of alcohol to Indigenous peoples is prohibited. So this right here is the key part that we are going to be focusing on in later episodes. In 1884 is when it is written in into law that children have to attend residential schools. So you see this big boom across Canada of residential schools being built. So once again, we will be looking at this point right here in future episodes. 1885, Indigenous peoples are banned from conducting their own spiritual ceremonies, such as the potlatch. A past system is also created, and Indigenous peoples are restricted from leaving their reserve without permission. Now, this will also be a key point in future episodes, so make sure to make note of that. 1886. The definition of Indian is expanded to include any person who is reputed to belong to a particular band or who follows the Indian mode of life, or any child of such person. Voluntary enfranchisement is allowed for anyone who is of good moral character and temperate in his or her habits. 1914. Indigenous peoples are required to ask for official permission before wearing any costume at public events. Dancing is outlawed off-reserve. In 1925, it was outlawed entirely. 1918, the Canadian government gives itself the power to lease out Indigenous land to non-Indigenous persons if it is being used for farming. So basically, it is legal for the government to, once again, steal Indigenous land. 1927. Indigenous peoples are banned from hiring lawyers or legal representation regarding land claims against the federal government without the government's approval. Hmm. It 
almost seems as if they are not allowed to do anything when the government steals their land they are forcibly stopped from doing anything about it 1951 after the joint committee of the senate and house of commons look at the act again in the late 1940s the bans on dances ceremonies and legal claims are removed women are now allowed to vote in band council elections provisions that are still in place include compulsory enfranchisement through marriage to a non-status man indigenous peoples who receive a degree or become a doctor clergyman or lawyer lose status 1951 amendments now enact the double mother rule, which removes the status of a person whose mother and grandmother were given status through marriage. 1960. Indigenous peoples are finally allowed to vote in federal elections. That is to say, for nearly a century, Indigenous peoples were denied the right to vote on land that had been stolen from them. 1961 compulsory enfranchisement is removed 1969 the first trudeau government announces its intentions to entirely eliminate the indian act with the white paper this draws great ire from indigenous communities and the government abandons the idea here is a quote from harold cardinal the head of the indian association of alberta we do not want the Indian Act retained because it is a good piece of legislation. It isn't. It is discriminatory from start to finish, but it is a lever in our hands and an embarrassment to the government as it should be. No just society and no society with even pretensions to being just can long tolerate such a piece of legislation but we would rather continue to live in bondage under the inequitable indian act than surrender our sacred rights anytime the government wants to honor its obligations to us we're more than happy to help devise new indian legislation Giving up the Indian Act meant surrendering any existing legislative claims to special Aboriginal rights. There were no other policy documents but the Indian Act that ensured such rights for them. 1970. The Royal Commission on the Status of Women recommends that legislation be enacted to repeal sexist Indian Act provisions. 1973, the Supreme Court rules that Indigenous rights to land do exist and cite the 1763 Royal Proclamation as proof. This translates into an actual victory in the following decade, when the Inuvialuit Claims Settlement Act comes into force in 1984, giving the Inuit of the Western Arctic control over resources. 1978, Canada issues a report which acknowledges the sexist marrying out rule which strips status women of their status and benefits if they marry non-status men. Sandra Lovelace challenged this rule in the late 1970s, petitioning the UN Human Rights Committee in her quest. 
1981, the committee found that the loss of a woman's status upon marriage violates the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. 1985, Bill C-31 comes into effect. The marrying out rule in the Indian Act is finally removed, but further distinctions in status are created, with additional issues stemming from this distinction. Reinstated women are given 6-1-C status, while men retain 6-1-A status. Now we are going to leave off there and not move into all the amendments in the next century. While the Indian Act has undergone numerous amendments since it was first passed in 1876, today it largely retains its original form. The Indian Act is administered by Indian and Northern Affairs Canada, or INAC, formerly the Department of Indian Affairs, and Northern Development, D-I-A-N-D. The Indian Act is a part of a long history of assimilation policies that intended to terminate the cultural, social, economic, and political distinctiveness of Indigenous peoples by absorbing them into mainstream Canadian life and values. Now let's look at the historic context before the Indian Act, so 1763 all the way up to 1876. The Royal Proclamation of 1763 laid down the basis for how colonial administration would interact with Indigenous peoples in the centuries that followed. The proclamation guaranteed certain rights and protections for Indigenous peoples and established the process by which the government could acquire their lands. Further policies were passed in the first half of the 19th century that aimed to assimilate Indigenous peoples into the growing settler population. The 1850 Act for the Better Protection of the Lands and Properties of the Indians in Lower Canada was one of the first pieces of legislation that included a set of requirements for a person to be considered a legal Indian, a precursor to the concept of status. These requirements were based on blood and essentially said that people shall be considered as Indians if they were of Indian blood and were members of a body or tribe of Indians. All descendants of such peoples were considered to be Indian. So too were non-Indians who intermarried with such Indians. People whose parents, one or both, would have been considered Indians, and all persons adopted in infancy by any such Indians. The acts commonly known as the Gradual Civilization Act of 1857 and the Gradual Enfranchisement Act of 1869 were primarily aimed at removing any special distinction or rights of Indigenous peoples in order to assimilate them into the larger settlement population. This was initially meant to be accomplished by the Gradual Civilization Act through a voluntary enfranchisement i.e. an Indigenous person would give up their status in exchange for land and their right to vote. 
but only one person voluntarily enfranchised. As a result, the government then began to unilaterally enfranchise Indigenous peoples. The Indian Act came to be developed over time through these separate pieces of colonial legislation regarding Indigenous peoples across Canada. The Gradual Enfranchisement Act established the elective band council system that remains in the Indian Act to this day. The Gradual Enfranchisement Act also granted the Superintendent General of Indian Affairs extreme control over status Indians. For example, the superintendent had the power to determine who was of good moral character and therefore deserved certain benefits, such as deciding if the widow of an enfranchised Indian lives respectably and could therefore keep her children in the event of the father's death. The act also severely restricted the governing powers of band councils, regulated alcohol consumption, and determined who would be eligible for band and treaty benefits. It also marks the beginning of gender-based restrictions to status. The Confederation of Canada presented the federal government with the challenge of uniting distinct and separate Indigenous groups under one law. Therefore, despite the diversity of experiences and relationships between Indigenous peoples and settlers across the country, including strong military and economic alliances in certain regions, Confederation established a very different relationship between these two groups by disregarding the interests and treaty rights of Indigenous peoples and uniformly making them legally wards of the state. Systems of control that have been established in prior legislations were now newly defined under one act, the Indian Act of 1876. This act effectively treated Indigenous peoples as children, a homogenizing and paternalistic relationship. Since the first pieces of legislation were passed, Indigenous peoples have resisted oppression and sought active participation in defining and establishing their rights. Early on, Indigenous leaders petitioned colonial governments, including the Prime Minister and the British monarchy, against oppressive legislation and systematic denial of their rights. The legislation against Indigenous peoples did not stop Indigenous practices, but in most cases drove them underground or caused Indigenous peoples to create new ways of continuing them without facing persecution. First introduced in 1876, the Act subsumed a number of colonial laws that aimed to eliminate Indigenous culture in favour of assimilation into Euro-Canadian society. The Act subsumed a number of colonial laws that aimed to eliminate Indigenous culture in favour of assimilation into Euro-Canadian society. The Act has been amended several times, most significantly in 1951 and 1985, with changes mainly focusing on the removal of discriminatory sections. It is an evolving, paradoxical document that has enabled trauma, human rights violations, and social and cultural disruptions for generations of Indigenous peoples. 
Through the Department of Indian Affairs and its Indian agents, the Indian Act gave the government sweeping powers with regards to Indigenous identity, political structures, governance, cultural practices, and education. These powers restricted Indigenous freedoms and allowed officials to determine Indigenous rights and benefits based on good moral character. The Indian Act attempted to generalize a vast and varied population of people and assimilate them into non-Indigenous society. It forbade Indigenous peoples and communities from expressing their identities through governance and culture. The Act replaced traditional structures of governance with banned council elections. Hereditary chiefs, leaders who acquire power through descent rather than elections, are not recognized by the Indian Act. Until 1951, women were also excluded from banned council politics. In 1927, the Act made it illegal for Indigenous peoples and communities to hire lawyers or bring about land claims against the government without the government's consent. Subsequent amendments required First Nations children to attend industrial or residential schools. The dark legacy of residential schools in Canada has affected Indigenous communities across the country and intergenerationally. During the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the Indian Act was used to support the past system, which restricted the movement of Indigenous peoples off reserves and the permit system which regulated the sale of goods off reserves. These restrictive policies have had lasting impacts on generations of Indigenous peoples as restrictions on mobility caused damage to Indigenous communities cultures and societies. Now let's look at the legacy and significance of the act. Though it has been amended several times over the years, the contemporary version of the Indian Act still outlines the terms of Indian status, various rules around reserves, financial guardianship of minors and the mentally incompetent, management of banned resources, elections, and other aspects of life on a reserve. The Indian Act has had ongoing and long-lasting impacts on Indigenous cultures, economies, politics, and communities. It has also caused intergenerational trauma, particularly with regards to Indigenous communities, as the oppression and restrictive provisions of the Act have negatively impacted generations of Indigenous peoples. So there is our overview of the Indian Act. I know I might have repeated a few things, um, but it's just because these points are so important to state. I hope you better understand the Act. It is still fairly complicated, so I have included links where I got my information in the episode description. Stay tuned to hear about the development of the residential school system in future episodes. You can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Ramblings with a Medical Historian. I am more active on Instagram. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can contact me on Instagram or Facebook or email me at ramblings.mh at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and keep rambling on.